Things that I talk about often at Co is that you know design thinking is tremendously valuable. Finding a customer insight, finding a pain point, and solving it—you know, this is what most product designers like live for. It's—I believe design thinking is absolutely vital, but it's also not sufficient. It is insufficient to to use design thinking only. It's it's in combining the emotional side of human beings and their love of, of a really good story. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Ty Montague, CEO of Co-Collective. There, there's a lot more than that, though. Can you can you give us some of the uh, the fancy things being on the fast company lists and the mentions in creativity ad age and and some of the the kind of accomplishments you've been recognized for? Um, sure, that's embarrassing. But Jess, first of all, psyched to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, so I spent a long time in what I would call the traditional advertising business, and I was fortunate enough to have some success in that business. I won a lot of awards in that business and was named one of the top. 20 creative directors of the last 20 years by Advertising Age magazine. I was named one of the top 10 creative minds in business by Fast Company. I made, along with my partner, now my business partner, Rosemary Ryan, we made the cover of Fast Company during the time that we were in the middle of renovating um, one of the you know, venerable and venerated brands in the advertising business, J. Walter Thompson. And during our run there, we wound up uh, winning the, or helping, you know, being part of the team really under Bob Jeffrey, the global CEO that won the, you know, can network of the year. So, you know, I, I, I've, I've had a fun career in, in the ad business and 10 years ago, finally decided that I'd had enough of that and wanted to get out and start my own business. So that's what led me to Co-Collective. And for people that don't know, J. Walter Thompson, I mean, haven't they been around since the 1800s? Yes, that's right. They were the, you know, when we were working there, they were the old, it was the oldest advertising agency still in existence, formed in the late 1800s by James Walter Thompson. And, you know, that company, one of the fun things about working there was digging back into the archive. You know, I've, I've always believed that in order to lead something effectively, you have to learn to love it. And, you know, we inherited it as a pair of leaders, Rosemary and I. And so I spent a lot of time getting to know the history of J. Walter Thompson and, and, and realized that, you know, they, this is a company that went through the, the birth of mass media, you know, from print to uh, radio, to television, to the internet, and successfully made, you know, a leap to the next thing over and over and over again. Very impressive company. So it was an honor to to be a steward of that that business for a short period of time. Well, co-president in the of the Americas and and Wyden Kennedy before that, you know, people who don't who aren't familiar with the advertising world still probably know about Wyden Kennedy and Nike and Apple and and all the stuff those guys have done that, that sure was a learning experience as well. Oh yeah, no, I was lucky over my career to work with some of the best uh, creative people in the business. Dan Wyden is a mentor. You know, I worked at Shy Day with Lee Clow, you know, Bartle Bogle Hegarty with John Hegarty. So I've I've you know I was lucky enough to to learn from some of the best. 
Yeah. Well, when you think about co-collective and this idea of, you know, developing business strategies and product innovation and, and kind of collaboration and, and these, I mean, huge clients, Google and News Corp and Timberland and Infinity and YouTube and these kind of clients. I, I think now that I've gotten halfway through your book story, which I, true story, everybody go to Amazon or well, go to Audible. That's what I believe in. <laughs> go to Audible, get your copy of, of True Story by Tom Mon- Ty Montague. I'm about on chapter seven and I'm really loving it. And I guess now that I'm this far into the book, I'm not surprised that you have clients like that coming to you mm. because I find a, a simplicity and a clarity in your writing that I don't see in a lot of books. We talked about this a little bit before the episode. You know, our listeners know that I'm audiobook nerd, maybe 800 plus business marketing strategy books. And what I find so, I guess, powerful about your book is this idea of, well, just the way you tell such gripping stories that make me really believe, but they're not the ones I've already heard, even though I am familiar with the companies mm. and there's, there's a scale of them that they're not just anecdotal. And I feel like they're well-researched enough where so many business books I read are like, somebody comes up with a theory and then they kind of hack a story to support it, mm. you know, and, and then consider that proof. And I find yours much more thorough. And, and I guess I just, I agree with your worldview. So, so congratulations on being a great writer. I totally appreciate that. Thank you. That means a lot, Jess. I I think maybe my first question is, well, I think what I want to cover is a little bit of how you got as successful as you got. And then the maybe the next part we'll go into is the advice based on this work that you do for, you know, Google and, and these great companies and how entrepreneurs and startups and smaller businesses can take those lessons, if that's okay. So, you know, we've, we've had a lot of folks from the advertising business on the show. I've got friends and clients and, and not too many have, have, you know, achieved what you achieved. And then you've now gone on to this second career, these, this last decade, becoming this successful entrepreneur and done what you've done here. What do you think you've done differently that not everybody else has done that, that has had you achieve what not everybody else has achieved? That's a that's an interesting question. Yeah. So, you know, as I started out saying, I, st- I started in the traditional advertising business and I, I was very, un- I was a very unlikely person to uh, succeed in business. I have to say, like I had a, a fraught relationship with what I would call organized education. I actually dropped out of high school in my senior year not because I couldn't do the work, but because I just found high school really tedious and went back to New Mexico where I had grown up and took my GED and went to UNM and and was pre-med and then dropped out of that. And I was a raft guide and a mechanic for a while. I mean, really random. And then on a whim, moved to New York and was tending bar and met somebody in the advertising business who said, you know, after, I don't know, I guess I was sounded funny or smart or something in this conversation, shockingly. And this person said, you'd be great in advertising. I know somebody, I can make an introduction. And way led on to way, I wound up putting my portfolio together. I didn't even realize that it was a job to make ads at this point and got my first job as a copywriter at a company that no longer exists called Scally McCabe Sloves. And, you know, what I realized right away was that, you know, advertising was a a business that rewarded you for being different, for like breaking rules. And, and I was like, damn, this is like the best job in the world. (laughs) This is the, this this is the job that I was made for. And so, you know, I, I just set about playing with culture and breaking as many rules as I possibly could and got some very lucky breaks 
and wound up working on some of the, you know, great brands of our time, Coca-Cola and Nike and JetBlue and Mercedes-Benz and, you know, just had a, a ton of fun. And, you know, the advertising business is kind of addictive, mostly because of the people. You know, it's it's a, you know, kind of merry band of misfits. And you just meet people who are, as you are, lifelong learners and curious and, and malcontents and kind of fun to hang out with at parties. And I was, I found it very addictive, but about 10 years ago, even more now, 15 years ago, I started to worry about the business. You know, it, you know, the word marketing had come to mean marketing communications. It was all about paid media and making ads. And it was obvious to me that the world was headed in a new direction. And so you know, I started trying to figure out how would you begin to think about managing the entire customer experience? Because as far as I'm concerned, that's what a brand really is. A brand is the sum total of every experience that your customer has with you. And so that means the products that you make, the services that you provide, in some cases, your business model, certainly your, you know, your customer service and things like that, certainly the experience at your website and I started to try to figure out how, you know, you would build a company that was designed to help clients build that entire experience. And that led to, that led to Co-Collective. And I guess maybe once again, following the theme of breaking rules, when I, when, when Rose and I left JWT, people thought we were insane. I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. They, I got calls and people like, are you okay? Like, are, have you lost your mind? Like you, things are going really well at JWT. What are you doing? And, uh, you know, we were just like, well, gotta, gotta do something new. It felt like hanging around in the advertising business would have been more about managing decline than inventing the future. And it just wasn't, it didn't feel exciting, you know? And where did you grow up? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, primarily. I was born in Carrollton, Georgia, and my my dad was an academic, and we moved around quite a bit while he was still in school. And then he got a job teaching at at UNM. So that's that's pretty much where I grew up in Albuquerque. You know, one of my favorite interviewers, David Rubenstein, he's the chairman of the Carlisle Group, big giant mm. private equity fund. Yeah, got, yeah. Got a show on Bloomberg and stuff. I've been interested in the way he interviews people and the way he's dives a little more into how they grew up and how that affected them. Yeah. So uh, in kind of following a hero here, my, okay. my question for you is when you think about growing up the way you did, how do you feel like it was maybe an advantage for the career you've led? That's, that's a very interesting question. I, I, Albuquerque, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is a, it's an unusual place. New Mexico is unusual all up. And, you know, most people have this blank spot in their mind between Texas and Arizona. It's sort of like there's something there, don't know what it is, never been there. But it's a stunningly beautiful place. And the thing about it that I found so interesting is that you have so many different, it's like this collision of cultures. You have the Native American culture, you have the Hispanic uh, culture there. You have kind of, uh, you know, I, I mean this in a loving way, redneck cowboy culture. You know, you have, there's a military base there. So you've got military culture. There's a university there. So, you know, you've got that flavor running through it. And then it's it's also a place where people run away to to escape and or drop out. And so you have this cavalcade of just weird, artistic, interesting people. And I think, you know, that growing up in that environment prepared me well to, you know, be able to empathize with different kinds of people, which ultimately is what 
you know, being an effective marketer is all about being able to put yourself in your customer's shoes and go like, would this be good? Would I actually like this? And, you know, so I think, I think that helped. You know, it's, it's fun for me to hear about your, you know, being a mechanic and that on your way to like leading one of the most prestigious names in your entire industry, right? <laughs> I, I took the very traditional route to mergers and acquisitions at Citigroup. I'm an art school dropout myself. Oh, are you? No, no kidding. I'm an illustration major, Fail, failed illustration We like trade, we traded places somehow. <laughs> I don't know. So thinking about, well, and for people, I guess we should give a little bit of context. If you have to sum up what it is that Co-Collective offers, you know, Google and Infinity and these clients you help that other agencies don't or other firms don't, what would you say that is? Yeah, we, we, we call ourselves a, a creative and strategic transformation partner for purpose-led businesses. And just to unpack that a little bit, we basically have two main theses. First, that to be successful today, either as to start a new business or to run an existing business, you have to define a higher purpose. You have to be pursuing some kind of generous goal today, something that transcends merely creating shareholder value, something that has generosity at the core of it, something that some positive change that you're trying to make in the world. We call that a quest. And so we help leadership teams define and align on what their their higher purpose is, their quest. And our second thesis as a business is your quest isn't something that you say. It's not a communications tool. It's a doing tool. You use your quest to to drive innovation throughout your customer experience in a way, you know, through the products that you make, services that you provide, your business model in some cases. And in a way, another, another good way to think about a quest is a good quest is the answer to the question, what business are you actually in? You know, I'll give you an example. Tesla, uh, a lot of people would think of Tesla as a car company, but Tesla has, you know, their quest is to upend what Elon Musk calls the hydro, the mine and burn economy. What he means is the hydrocarbon economy and usher in a new economy of clean, sustainable electric power. And so they view themselves as a transportation and, and energy infrastructure company. They, they make cars, but they make all kinds of things now to, to really achieve that quest. And so they are in the business of accelerating adoption of clean, sustainable energy, right? That's the business that Tesla is in. And so, you know, we, we help companies define that quest. We help them often cascade it down inside their own organization so that everybody knows what to do with it. And then we help them define, in many cases, what we call the iconic actions that they need to take to make that quest real for their their employees and their customers. You know, a question that I have specifically for entrepreneurs, you know, we, we caught up for a minute yesterday and you said, hey, there's some advantages of not having a legacy to overcome. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's disadvantages of can you find enough customers or get enough investor dollars to stay alive long yeah. enough to build, to build this quest? Right? right, exactly. Which is, I guess there's challenges no matter what you do in life. But, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about early in the book, you talk about something that I feel like a lot of like hard-nosed business guys want to ignore, which is this idea that we speak the language that we're, you know, of our friends, you know, in this case, mostly English in this country, right? But that we also speak a language of brands and that how we groom ourselves, the clothes we choose to wear, the car we drive, it tells people how we think about ourselves and hopefully leads them to believe certain things about us, right? That's right. And, you know, so that could be driving a Tesla or it could be like in the 90s when 
you know, I, if I, my mom ever got me a shirt by polo, I would like cut the little guy out of the shirt. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> That's would refuse to wear something from gap. You know, like it's right. It's right. Yeah. Um, because with my snowboarder skater buddies, you know what I mean? Like I was trying to signal, like, I am not a yuppie. I'm not a right. What, I'm right? cool. I get it. Yeah. And, and yet this like logical aspect of maybe a more engineering focused approach that's been brought to, to the startup world. There's a lot of talk about customer discovery and customer discovery interviews, which I think is amazing. I look at how much time I've wasted on like sitting around the board team boardroom table, drinking our own Kool-Aid, telling ourselves everybody's going to want what we have. And it ends up like, no, only we want what we have. Like there's very, very few people with exactly our experience and, you know, we successfully built something that customers didn't want, right? And so I, I think that stuff is great, but yet I do find the more engineering or the more analytical minded, maybe some more of your, your CFO finance type guys that get entrepreneurial in an attempt almost to preserve the image that I am a rational being, we ignore the fact that humans are not rational, including our customers. And so something that's really great, but comes in the wrong package will be ignored like, you give the example of one of the big box stores, which I'm, I'm going to guess is Target, and you don't have to confirm. Okay, but, <laughs> thank you. But yeah, but you're they, you're very warm. Okay, but the, you know they had this this brand, this generic brand all across the store, and their stuff was as good as the regular brand, except that they're signaling to all their friends, I can't buy the regular brand. And you know, and anyways, can you talk about this? Maybe this like intentional blindness to the fact that we and our customers are highly emotional about our own image and that we don't just make logic-based decisions. Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a favorite topic of mine. And I, you're right. I pick on engineers a little bit in the book, you know, just because if you look around you, the world, it is just very clear that we make choices based on almost anything but logic. So just a few things, 80% of all basketball shoes made never touch a basketball court. So, and basketball shoes, because they're specially engineered for purpose built for basketball, they cost more than regular shoes. So explain that to me. People are going out of their way to buy more expensive shoes that do the same thing that the less expensive shoes do if you use them in the way that people, most people use them, which is just to walk around on the street. Why is that? That is completely irrational. And, and yet people do it all the time. And, and people who are engineers do it all the time. I mean, you'll see engineers wearing basketball shoes and t-shirts in offices. And that is a choice that they've made that makes absolutely no logical sense. And, and, and yet, you know, there are folks, as you said, you know, they tend to have engineering or finance backgrounds. And it's, it's almost like their self-esteem is tied up in the fact that the world is a, must be a rational place, that they are, you know, the world is, is predictable and that it is understandable and it, you can break it down into a kind of math equation and it will all, everything will run smoothly. And I don't want to diss that worldview either because it's actually really important to making things that work, right? But to discount the other side, the irrational, emotional kind of, you know, illogical side of human beings is to cut yourself off from this tremendously powerful resource. You know, the co companies, if you can, if you can capture 
people's emotional kind of imagination about themselves, if you can create a story about your product or your service or your business that causes people to dream and really want to like try you on as a way of saying something about themselves, like you can create a massive success with a product that is, you know, does what it says on the label, but isn't necessarily a, an incredible breakthrough. And, you know, I'm also not advocating for, for not innovating and, and, and making crappy products. Like I, I really believe that these are two things. Like one of the things that I talk about often at Co is that, you know, design thinking is tremendously valuable finding a customer insight, finding a pain point and solving it. You know, this is what most product designers like live for. It's, I believe design thinking is absolutely vital, but it's also not sufficient. It is insufficient to, to use design thinking only. It's, it's in combining the emotional side of human beings and their love of, of a really good story with design thinking. It's kind of pulling those two things together where the magic is. And, uh, you know, for some reason, the universe doesn't seem to want that to happen. Like, it's actually really hard to get people with design thinking backgrounds to talk to people with, you know, I'll call it story or, you know, marketing backgrounds. They're, they're a little bit oil and water. But I, I really believe that that's where the magic is. You know, you think about Tesla, like, I, I really feel like if he had started 10 years ago with the Model 3, that Tesla wouldn't wouldn't have the emotional response that it has in people, right? By starting with a cool two-seater roadster that only Leonardo DiCaprio could get, right? Exactly. You know, it it held this position. And, and you know, arguably, by selling more Model 3s than every, everything else, he will likely water that down. But yeah, if, but, you know, to get to this phase, you know, like huge success on him getting to this phase and... And maybe with the new Roadster and some of his other exciting things, he'll be able to keep it, right? So I, I guess my question around that is, as entrepreneurs, we've got the problem of if your stuff doesn't work, you don't typically get repeat buyers or yep. a lot of referrals, yep. right? Yeah. But if it doesn't work, if it does work, but it doesn't appeal to the story about myself I want to believe or the story about myself that I want other people to believe, yeah. you may not get them to try it in the first place. Yep. And it's funny how the Red Bull example has been used to death in business literature, but, but your approach to it, I found a little bit more novel. Can you, can you talk for just a minute on maybe part of the Red Bull story that maybe not everybody else has picked up on when it comes to this? Sure. Yeah. You tell me if this is, you know, the part that other folks haven't picked up on, but, you know, Red Bull, Red Bull is a, is a, a great example of a company that is, you know, quest led. So the, the founder Dietrich Mateschitz, he, you know, if, again, he, he would not describe Red Bull as a energy drink company. They make an energy drink. They sell a lot of energy drinks, but Red Bull sees itself and he sees the company as an action sports lifestyle business that is pursuing the quest of helping all of us live our lives to the absolute extreme. And, and so if you think about that as the business that Red Bull is in, then it makes perfect sense that they make energy drinks but they also invent things like the Red Bull air races, including, you know, the big inflatable cones that the airplanes fly through. 
it makes perfect sense that they put on massive global participatory events like Flugtag, you know, where people, teams of people compete to, to, you know, build a flying machine and then throw it off a platform into 30 feet of water and see who got the furthest. You know, they, they, Red Bull is constantly making ways for people to actually participate in the lifestyle that, that Red Bull believes in. And they sell a product that goes perfectly, you know, hand in hand with that, with that lifestyle. And so, you know, Red Bull, Red Bull is, is when I hold a can of Red Bull in my hand, or when I, when I try that product, I've got this whole world in my head beyond just what the product tastes like and, and what I happen to be doing at the time that I'm drinking it. Like I become another person. I become, I'm like living in, in, in Red Bull's world, the world that they have created through all the activity that they have, they have built. And a lot of those activities, you know, don't make a tremendous amount of money. They're not huge revenue drivers, but they are massive parts of the, of the part of the Red Bull story that make me uh, want to participate. In, in other words, they're spending their marketing money instead of making commercials they're making ways for people to actually participate with the brand in the lifestyle that the brand really believes in promoting. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's just such a more efficient way to, to market today. And, and so if, if, you know, Red Bull also is a company that has real scale and I know that, you know, startups are, are constantly starved for, you know, resources and time, it's just really hard to start a business and build a product. But, you know, I, I think entrepreneurs make a mistake if they think of the story part of their business as something soft or fluffy or something that, you know, doesn't have hard ROI, you know, that the story part of your business can actually be the thing that differentiates you, that causes people to want to share your product with all of their friends that really, you know, get them excited and wanting to participate and evangelize for you. And so putting some care and attention into that side of your business will hold you in good stead. You know, I think one of the things that you just said that I hadn't really picked up on or that just really spoke to me right now is this idea of um, giving the customers the opportunity to do that. You know, I, I, it's funny, I, I usually have an allergic reaction when people invent a new word for their business book or whatever. Okay. Oh, right. But, like story doing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yet to me, it's actually a very clear distinction because there is so much storytelling, but there's so much storytelling that it's not authentic. It's not like who our company is in the bones. It's something that marketing people thought would attract customers. Right. Yeah, so that's exactly. the story that they feel. And they hired some great agency to tell the story well, but they, you know, they only stole it once. They only told it once. They didn't live it for years. Right. Nobody believes that's their religion. Right. Yep, that's right. And, and I think I hadn't thought about this idea of like giving the customers the opportunity to live it with you. You know, somebody who I've really enjoyed on the show, we had Chris Neeland. He has a brand in Calgary. It's kind of an anti agency, he calls it, but it's he runs the collective at the Bant Springs Hotel, which is for cult brands. And he brings in like GoPro and North Face and, you know, these brands that have like a real cult following. Right. And he says like, it's invitation only for like a hundred CMOs or something. And he said when the woman from, I think it was the CMO of Harley Davidson got up and said, we use 80% of our marketing budget on our existing customers. Like Jaws just dropped. Mm. Right. Because everybody else uses like 99.9% on new customer acquisition. Yeah. And she talks about the Harley owners group, the hog group, and like these other things of like, 
And what I hadn't thought about was this idea of giving them the chance to live it because I think storytelling, advertising, marketing, sales, we're so concerned about making our revenue so we can make payroll, so we can give our investors the return, whatever, that, you know, we want our product to work and we, we all say we care about our customers, but I don't know that as I hear very often people talking about, about providing the customer experience, a chance to live this quest you're talking about. And I, I don't know which interview, I was watching some YouTube interviews of yours and you said that part of a quest is having enemy, like who's the Darth Vader? Yeah, right. that's right. And, and I love that because it, it put more of a crisp edge to it of like, you know, to be for something, you probably, there's probably yep. the other side of that coin, right? Gotta be against something. That's right. So in my, in my trying to be a rebel and do something different and break the rules, follow, follow and ties example here, I'd love to tell you my ideas for our, our main business we're building right now and, and tell me if you'd make tweaks or how you see it different or is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. So the thought, the quest, see, I was just writing this up this morning, so we'll see how clearly it comes out. Okay. But, so we kind of want to be the brand that provides our investment firm buying like boring, reliable apartment buildings and, you know, commercial real estate that's highly stable. Okay. Okay. We kind of want to be like providing boring, reliable income to exciting people so they can like have the freedom to live the lives they want. So like, you know, I've got all these entrepreneur buddies who they, even if they make a lot of money, they have like this anxiety. It could all go away at any moment. Right. Yeah. And it's actually more their spouse's anxiety often because that would be like an adventure for them. Right. So it's almost like, how about some boring, reliable income? So no matter what happens on this startup, everything's fine at home or, or, you know, the pro athletes or the the action sports athletes or the mountain climbers and adventurers and stuff. It's like buy some boring, reliable mailbox money so that you can go do that adventure you always wanted to do. Yeah. This is, this is kind of the the thing. And I think it's mostly just because that's what I want so bad. Right. Yeah. Right. But the question is, you know, you look at, you know, I almost didn't go to college because I was trying to be a pro snowboarder. You know, <laughs> I've, I finally achieved my 14 year old boy dream. We live in a mountain house, just like next to the U international forest, 2 million acres of, of land. We're allowed to ride our snowmobiles up to 10,000 foot elevation peaks. So we can snowboard down. Right. Love it. So I guess my question for you is I have this concern that I'm, I'm making too much of a stretch just because I want to like, Because I think the Red Bull brand, there's not a lot of people that are thinking, oh, yeah, I should probably trust my finances to to Red Bull. They they haven't given that perception, right? Right. And not that they couldn't get into it, but I'm trying to think of this like, how how do we tell the story of adventurers and exciting people and uncommonly high achievers, but but also tell the story of, hey, I've got extremely consistent conservative guys who babysit the money. Like, I, I actually want to make the TV show with with the pro snowboarders and like bring some celebrity and pro snowboarder and their kids and do some crazy adventure the celebrity's never done and the pro snowboarder guides us and we make this exciting thing and do how to's and whatever right yeah and then say like hey part of the reason we can afford to do this is we've got boring reliable income that's why i didn't have to go to work today right yep but nobody wants to believe that like jess who's happy to go skydiving jess who's happy to do whatever's probably like the number one guy crunching the numbers on should we buy this building or not so it's almost like i almost have two stories right i'm like living this brand with our clients and we've got the like these conservative guys who are back in the office spending 24 7 watching your money like a hawk and making sure that those tenants are actually paying and we've you know anyways i'm just kind of throwing up on you any reaction to all that well so i think it's it's a very interesting tension right because yeah they're they're sort of two really opposite kind of you know images there 
you know, the, the image of the person who devil may care, you know, takes risk, enjoys life to the fullest and, you know, enabled by some people with, you know, green eye shades in the, in the back room who are like actually minding the store. But I think that's interesting. You know, I think that's, that, that is, that is, that tension is, is where the good stuff is. Right. And that's, I think what you should continue to explore right how do you actually heighten that you know it's like just things that so well first of all let me ask you a couple of questions when you think about you know what you're getting out of bed every day to enable is it is it that kind of freedom for people you're you know the clients of your your REIT or the people who invest in your REIT you want to enable their their ability to go live their lives to the absolute extreme because you've got it all locked down in the back room. Like, what are you trying yeah. to accomplish? What, you know, what is your quest? A, and a, then B, what's your enemy? I think my enemy is less with more, less right. freedom, less money, less chance to make the world better and do impact investing and give back less of that with more time, more being a slave to the business, more stress, more headaches, more competition, you know? Yeah, I think this. I I have a, I have two like if we've got uh, Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine, okay. Yeah, <laughs> two of mine are they're two lies that I feel like I got sold that really tick me off. So one of them is that the only way to be successful is to work hundred hour weeks and neglect your family and and burn the midnight oil. And later when I learned about how Warren Buffett invests, you know he he calls his he calls his he says that his approach borders on lethargic. Okay. Yes. You know, Richard Koch from the 80-20 principle and like all these people who have figured out, you know, that there's most things we do hardly matter at all. And there's a very few things that we do that matter incredible to an incredible amount. Yes. Right. Yes. And that, and then like these people who, instead of working with their muscles, they work with their brain and they figure out a huge incentive to have the absolute best person at that come do that for them. You know, read these books about Netflix, they'll pay way more than anybody else in the industry to get the top creative to come run that show. And then they actually win Oscars, you know, yes. and they throw out the rules. Bill Gates talks about how the top coder is not 10% better than the next one or 50% better that they're often, they're often 20 times or a hundred times more important to the company than the next guy. Right. And so pay what it takes to get those folks. Right. Right. To me, there's these principles that mean I don't have to risk divorce and grow up having my teenagers hate me, but I have to give up the lie that is so glamorized that it's hard work and it's, and it's, it's all about me instead of like, hey, can I be the servant leader that is like Delta Force selecting the absolute best people and then trusting them and giving yes. them all the tools and everything they need? Like yes. you can make a lot of money being the orchestra conductor. You don't have to play every instrument in the orchestra, you know? So that's, yep. that's one. And then the, the partner, you know, Emperor Palpatine to me is risk. I feel like I got sold this, this lie that you make a lot of money. You have to take a big risk to make a lot. Yes. And again, back to Warren Buffett and like compound interest investing and margin of safety investing where he gets a better deal on something and it has a higher return because he paid for it less for it up front. Yeah. And, you know, like, again, Elon Musk and his work 80 hours a week so that you make twice as much as the next guy, right? Well, Warren Buffett doesn't make doesn't work 80 hour weeks, and he can achieve that too. So it's not the only way, you know, it obviously worked for him. But the lie is that it's the only way. And the other one is this idea of Elon Musk got down to his last penny on his last rocket. And it's so dramatic that the guy with all these millions could have been broke at any moment, right? 
And yet, like you look at how many billionaires have followed like the Warren Buffett compound interest, buy something with a margin of safety that has like buying existing cash flow stream. Don't don't just wait to hope people's emotions will think it's worth more later. So to me, this outside view that entrepreneurs take a lot of risk and they love risk. I feel like the guys I've got the most respect for, they they're not risk avoiders, they're risk minimizers. Yes. But they're definitely not like seeking risk, like, oh, I wonder how we can I wonder how we can make this even more risky. They're not thinking like that. So right. to me, you know, less with more and taking unnecessary risk. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I'm the Buffett quote that always grabs me is what is it? Be be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. You know, it's kind of counter programming to the emotional swings of of the market and just buy when it's cheap and sell when it's not and you know he's obviously a master at it there are a bunch of people who who try to do that and and i don't think do as good a job so i think there is some you know beyond just logic there's some real talent there but i agree we do get sold this this kind of this story that that you know risk is is good and and people who can tolerate the most risk are the people who are going to do best in life and we tend not to talk about the people who are successful in you know what we would consider to be boring ways you know we we want the people who are successful shooting you know rockets out of the earth's atmosphere and you know, nearly going bankrupt because they can't get their factory working to crank out the Model 3, right? The drama of that, we're, we're like, we're sucked into that. So I think that's an that's also an interesting tension. Like, how do you make boring sexy? And this is kind of my thought. And I want you to weigh in on, is it's like, what if it's, what if it's buy the boring so you can do the sexy? You yeah. know, what if it's like wage a war against overworking and taking too much risk so that you can have the freedom to go fly fishing in Belize or, you know, take your, take your kid or your grandkid and do those adventures you always wanted to do. Right. Like, yep. what if it, what if it was, and, I, and I'm interested, you know, this is obviously for me, but there's probably people listening who have a different tension of, Oh, I'd like to mix this and this, yep. which would, would obviously make us different that because they don't naturally go together, you know, they don't, they're not a pre-made puzzle pieces. Yeah. Maybe let's actually take a tangent for that for one second. We can come back sure. to this question. Yeah. When you think about this idea of, you know, I feel like one of the biggest sins for any marketing, any company is blending in with the yeah, competition. Right? Absolutely. And yet you need to stand out in a way that's actually helpful. Like just standing out to standing out, you know, you like any eighth grade kid does that. <laughs> Maybe yep. not so effectively, right? Yep. Um, so can you talk about kind of remixing disparate ideas that that have attention and any principles you would bring to any one of your clients who wants to mix ideas that have a lot of tension? Well, sure. We, we call the attention grabbing ideas, iconic actions, you know, they're, they're, they're designed to, to kind of help you stand out to create kind of talk value. Some of the, you know, these are not, I'll use examples of, of companies that are not clients of ours, you know, you know, an iconic action, if you're REI, right? And you, you're, you're an outdoor retailer, essentially, you know, but you're also a co-op. So you're owned by your customers and you really want to stand out and, and, and help people understand that you're, you're more than just a, a store to go buy stuff. You're a, 
you you passionately believe in helping people go outside and and enjoy the outdoors and so you make you sell products that will enable that but you also have classes that will enable that you've created content to help enable that and what you then need is an iconic action that helps people understand oh they really mean it right they're willing to put their money where their mouth is and so on black friday instead of staying open for 24 hours like everybody else you close and you say we want everybody employees and customers alike to go enjoy the outside and so don't shop on black friday at rei and you know that costs some money if the the cfo probably had a heart attack when you know people came to 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 the leadership team with that idea but that idea had massive cultural resonance and it was absolutely on message for what rei stands for in the world and it has to have been successful because they keep doing it now they've done it several years in a row so it's like you want to find those things that that are sufficiently risky to cause people to sit up and take notice or sufficiently different, maybe risky is the wrong word, sufficiently different, but that are completely aligned with your story and what you claim to, you know, what your quest is, what you believe needs to happen in the world. And when you get those two things right, you know, when you've got a really compelling quest and then you're able to come up with an action that makes that quest true in a really attention-getting way, you know, it, it kind of makes its own sauce, right? You, you create fame off of be, being yourself, which is the best kind of fame. Okay, that is so helpful. I was sitting here taking, taking notes as you're talking. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, I thought about it, what if it's like a bit of a yin and a yang, you know, mm. and you say, and you, and you just, you call out the elephant in the room. Right. And you, you don't try to pretend it's not boring. You yeah. Call, you know, you call out the yin yang of it. Right. And I thought, really, what if the whole premise is come buy some more freedom? Yeah. You know, come buy some more freedom. And like, and what, what would you do with some more freedom? Like, like what's your adventure? And in fact, maybe a way we can live it is inviting people on adventures with us. I like, like what that if we made, I like that a lot. What if we made like really cost effective ways for people to live more adventures and share them with us? And for us to host adventures, I mean, I live, again, I, I live like literally four miles from 2 million acres of national forest. We have a lot of adventures right here. You know what I mean? And like invite customers to come on adventures with us. And I like that a lot. Invite them to submit their adventure to us. I and, like that a lot. And to connect them to each other, right? I mean, you're doing business with some of the people in the world who would most likely love to hang out together like you've you've got a the potential for a, like a genuine community that that word is is overused but you know you all all of all of your customers share a worldview right and they obviously have created enough success for themselves that they can buy in and they would love to hang out i mean you know that's the way in at least in my experience the best entrepreneurs combine their passion their passions in life and their passions in work. They're sort of hard to pull apart. I've, I can't, I haven't figured out how to live that way for, to be honest, right? I love snowboarding. I love flying airplanes. I haven't figured out how to make money doing either of those things, <laughs> but the best people in the world kind of, it sort of all flows together, right? And I bet a lot of your customers are that way. Well, it makes me think like, I don't have to prescribe what their adventure is. Yep. Like if they're getting the freedom to have an adventure, like yep. their adventure could be outdoor stuff like I like, or 
It could be the adventure to go volunteer to dump in Manila, Philippines, right? Absolutely. Or it could Build be, it could be action. Or... Yeah. Building a startup, I think is an adventure. Absolutely. You know, like there could be, there could be this like shared thing of like the shared thing of the freedom to have an adventure, yep. uh, which would naturally going back to like the Red Bull, the, the emotional response thing, you know? We can profile people's adventures. We can live adventures ourselves. We can invite people on our adventures with us. We can share their adventure and cross-pollinate. And, and if I don't have to make the money off being a travel agency, mm. right? That can be the lost leader. That can be that can be the thing that we're continually trying to make our version of Flutog, right? <laughs> right. And it's it's all funded by the fact of encouraging people to buy some more freedom, buy some more freedom from us. I love the idea of buying freedom. You know, I think that's, that's a very cool idea. You know, that's sort of the business you're in is packaging and selling freedom. And that's, that's, that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. <laughs> well, okay. We took up a lot of time on my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back. All right, no one um, is listening now. Everyone has. Yeah, right. <laughs> By the way, we tell everybody if, if they go to cocollective.com, yeah. what's something worth checking out? They want to check out your website. They're thinking maybe their company or their, their charity or their business could benefit from having a thinker like you helping them? Is it, is it looking up at your previous work or your thought leadership? Where would you direct people? Sure. Yeah. Cocollective.com. You know, I would encourage people to look at our case histories, you know, just see the work that we've done for clients. We have a newsletter that we produce that is also on the website that, that I like a lot just because we go out, it's called Co-Collected and it's, we just collect examples of other uh, companies, companies that are not, you know, clients or we, we have no relationship to. Sometimes we put clients in there, but it's, 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 it's kind of a mixture of companies that are, are walking their talk, you know, that they're actually, you know, authentically doing their story. And that's, that's a fun read, I think, because it just, you know, it helps you remember that this is not some kind of made up marketing thing. This is how the best companies in the world operate, period, end of story. And uh, can, you know. can we talk about a couple of those for a minute? Can you, you know, I remember when I was getting ready for this interview, looking at what you guys had done for Google Maps. Yeah. Can you talk about that one for a minute? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, they, they, we, we do lots of we're sort of serial project people with Google and the maps assignment actually was run by my partner, Neil Parker. So I wasn't like in the middle of that project, but, you know, the maps team, you know, it, 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 they built an incredibly impressive product. We, most of us probably use it and on a daily basis, but they, you know, they were looking for, a, a way of articulating their purpose in the world that would unlock some additional avenues for features. And, you know, one of the big insights in that, in that project was that people, you know, don't necessarily always want to just get from A to B, right? There are different modes when you're moving around the world, right? Sometimes you're in discover mode right? So you actually want to be told information about things that you might be interested in seeing that would take you off of the beaten path, as opposed to what is the shortest, fastest route between A and B. And sometimes you're in getting it done mode, right? Where you just want to get there. And, you know, allowing, you know, a, that, that unlocked for the engineers, 
just a, a different way of thinking about the Google Maps feature set and, and you know, allowed them to, you know, enable, allow customers to enable different, different modes in, in the product. And, uh, you know, that, that's in your map maps today. You can go look at that and uh, play with it. It's, it's, it's uh, pretty fun. You know, um, it was interesting going through that case study. I hadn't thought about that the super users were yeah. kind of those younger groups in like the most densely populated cities yes. who, who, you know, are the most tech savvy, mo- but it's the most densely populated and, and think like, it just made me think like, oh yeah, what is the use case that's different for them versus, you know, where I grew up in farm town, Western Canada or out here in the sticks by park city, Utah. Right. Like right. when, when I am, in, when I am in Manhattan and I'm walking around, what are, what are my different needs there versus somebody who, who lives there? You don't even right. know their needs there. Right. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, not thinking again, it's just a way of like, not thinking of people in, in this kind of monolithic, you know, I am robotically trying to get from point A to point B. I'm a different person in a totally different environment. If it's, if it's urban or if it's rural and I have a different need states and, uh, you know, that's, again, that's sort of the combination of design thinking and, and story thinking, you know, if, if you can unlock, you know, those two things simultaneously, you know, people, people who build products, engineers can find it useful and people who market products can find it very useful. Well, sticking with the same company, did you work on either the YouTube projects that are on your case studies? I've the worked, music or the vlogger influencer ones? Well, we, so we, the, the project that I worked on for YouTube was the first project that we did with them where we basically YouTube, you know, they were having trouble with, with their advertising agency and they came to us and said, we're going to need a new ad agency. Do you have any suggestions? Or is there anybody that you think that we should meet? And we said, instead of hiring an ad agency, why don't you work with YouTube creators to make YouTube marketing? Like why you already have some of the most creative people in the world on your platform. And, uh, you know, we were, we kind of said it it timidly because it seemed really obvious to us that that would be (laughs) a thing that you would like think about, but you know, it's a cobbler shoes thing, right? You're, they're busy making YouTube work and they had never thought about that. And so they loved that idea and they asked for our help to find the right YouTube makers to, you know, engage with to make YouTube work. And so we did that and it was a, it was a lot of fun and it was, you know, a big success. Well, thinking about that principle, you know, there's probably us in completely different businesses that are, that our super users would actually be great brand evangelists. Yeah. Any kind of principles or thoughts about that, or just uh, maybe mindsets to bring to a process of, Instead of, you know, of looking inside? Sure. Yeah. I'll whip through these as quickly as possible, but just something practical that your audience can take away. Like we, one of the things that we realized, you know, after hammering away at this for 10 years is that all companies exist along some kind of a spectrum, you know, of being, there are very few pure, like storytelling companies and very few pure story doing companies. Most companies are somewhere in the middle. And so we created a set of questions that help companies sort of self-diagnose and figure out where they are on the continuum. So first question is, do you have a story? Often 
company, you know, especially startups are so busy, you know, doing the thing that they're trying to do, but they haven't really thought about their story. And in big companies, there are often so many stories, no one has actually agreed on what the one is. So do you have a story? Second question, does that story define an ambition beyond commercial aspiration? In other words, is it is it a quest? Is it is there generosity at the core of it? Are you trying to make the world better in some tangible way? Third question is, does your story define a clear enemy, right? Not only need to be for something, it's very helpful to be against. You've heard me talk about Darth Vader. Darth Vader made Star Wars Star Wars because he was such a great villain. So having a great villain, having a dragon that you're trying to get out of bed every day to, to slay can be really energizing for your people and for your customers. Is the story being used to drive innovation throughout the company? In other words, it's not a thing that you put in your commercials or put in a desk drawer or carve on the wall in your lobby. It's a thing, it's a tool that you put to work in your business and you use it to inform the creation of your entire customer experience. Have you defined a few iconic and transformative innovations to focus on? Like what are the things that you want everyone to remember when, when you know, I say, Red Bull, you say Flugtag. When I say REI, you say, you know, stay at home, Black Friday, go out, out, is it opt outside is their name for that. Go, go out, go outside, don't shop on Black Friday. And so defining those few things that you're going to do that you, you're really trying to get people's attention and create word of mouth. And then the, the final question, and this is the acid test is, are people outside the company engaging with and participating in your story? And so the best story doing companies can answer yes to all six of those questions. Most companies can't, and that's fine. You just figure out how many you can say yes to, and that will locate you on the continuum. And then you just work on the ones that you, you can't say yes to yet and, and work your way toward that. I love it. It needs to become a cheat sheet. You need to like- yeah. Mail people some laminated copies of that or let them download an ebook. Exactly. Well, this has been great. What's a what's a question I didn't ask that you'd like to answer? Huh. Yeah. I guess you didn't ask me if if I like being an entrepreneur. And maybe predictably I love it. It was the scariest thing I'd ever done because I did this, you know, late. I, I was in advertising for 25 years before I started my own business. And so I worked for other people and didn't do this until I was, you know, mid forties. And I was terrified, like just <laughs> scared. And, and, you know, you realize afterwards, it's like, what are you so scared about? Like if the whole thing tanks, you can always just get a job somewhere where you calm down. But I was like white knuckle. And, but then, you know, as somebody said, make the leap and the nets will appear, the nets appeared and we started to have a business and it started to work. And, and the, the only regret I have now is just not doing it sooner. So all you entrepreneurs listening to the show, like do it, you know, you're, it's not going to be fatal if it doesn't work out. And what you learn by starting a business will hold you in good stead, whether it's a success or not. You know, it's exciting to hear. And I think, again, our world glamorizes the young entrepreneur. You know, yeah. if you're not a billionaire by 30, like maybe you should throw in the towel. Forget about it. Right. right? Yeah. And so I, to me, people like, you know, Colonel Sanders from KFC are wildly inspirational. The guy doesn't, doesn't even get started on his second location until he's like 66. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then creates, you know, essentially the preeminent fast food brand of his time, you know, later surpassed by others. But yeah. Well, maybe a final question is there's a lot of people who used to work at a big fancy agency and then they start their own firm and they, that firm doesn't achieve the level of success that you have. Mm. So of people who have left similar backgrounds, but again, not achieved what co-collective has, Mm -hmm. it's kind of my repeated question for the day here, but what do you think you guys have done at co-collective that others with similar backgrounds haven't done? Well, I think, you know, I think we, when we started Co, people looked at our model because we haven't really talked about the collective part of Co Collective, but, you know, one of the things about us is we have co-conspirators. We believe that, you know, in collaboration and we believe that, you know, we wanted to build a culture where we could work well, collaborate well with other businesses that have skills that we don't have that our clients might use. And that's kind of unheard of in the advertising business. In the advertising business, you know, you have what is called a full service agency. J. Walter Thompson was one of those. And you you do well or don't do well by claiming that you can do everything. If a client needs it, you can do it. And, uh, and that just isn't true. And so I always wanted to be able to look clients in the eye and, and say, you know, no, we, we can't do that, but we know somebody who does do that and they're the best in the world at it. And, and, you know, I'm going to introduce you. I'm not going to white label them. They're going to come to the table as themselves. And if that turns into a relationship for them and you down the line, that's good. That's, you know, part of the karmic wheel. And uh, that was anathema in the advertising business. And and what I would say is that, you know, that, I guess, sensibility of, of collaboration and, you know, there's some generosity in that, in that stance held us in, in really good stead. I think even, you know, even in the tough times, people were uh, hopefully rooting for us just because we were trying to do something new and, and something where we wanted to help other people do well. And, you know, I would just say to anybody who's starting a business, like, think about, think about, what your generous purpose is, right? Back to a quest, have one, and it will help the universe send, you know, good things your way. I don't know if that was an answer. Yeah, no, I love it. You know, I really believe that you're going to harvest what you plant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you sharing the love and bringing people in, what a huge invitation for them to bring you in, you know, like spirit of generosity invites generosity. And I I love that answer. Thanks. Well, maybe one final thing is more of a thank you for me. Yesterday on our pre-call, we, we, you know, you were very interested in our charity, Child Rescue and Combating Child Trafficking and hearing about my mother-in-law surviving child trafficking in our work. And, and you know, I, you're offered to, to see if there's a way you guys can help. I, I just want to publicly say that I appreciate people like you who hear a need and, and you know, thank offer you. to get I mean, involved. I really appreciate it. First of all, it's such a, an important thing that you've taken on. It's, it's great work. And, uh, you know, we, we, that's the other thing at Co, because we are trying to help companies or organizations define their purpose. We, we attract people at Co who are just passionate about making the world better. And so being able to work with an organization like yours would be delightful to them. It's sort of, it, you know, it, they were there, you know, the whole team at Co would jump at the chance to work on a project like that. So you know, it goes both ways. <laughs> I love it. Well, if people want to connect with you, what, what are the best ways? You know, you can always hit me in email at uh, tmontague at co-collective.com. 
I would encourage you to go check out our website. I'm on cocollective.com and I'm on LinkedIn. I love it. Well, thanks for making time for this. Jess, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, it was for me. Thanks.